We solemnly swear we're up to no good. Hi, I'm Gary Roby. I'm Victoria Laguna. And we're the hosts of Harry Potter Minute, the fan podcast where we overanalyze the Harry Potter movies one magical minute at a time. Join us as we argue about whether or not McGonagall would meow at Dumbledore. She wouldn't. As we ponder just how much Harry's fortune is worth. Just $40. As we guess how much mileage one gets out of an Ollivander wand. 100,000 jinxes. As we detail the ins and outs of Hogwarts Castle. It's only a model. Join us Monday through Friday, only from DuelingGenre.com. Mischief Managed. Dueling Genre. everyone and welcome to the protagonist podcast where each week we look at a great character in a great story i'm joe dorowski and i'm todd mack and this week we're discussing hercule poirot from the novel murder on the orient express and this was a request by todd yay (laughs) (laughs) um uh, yes i did request this it was sort of um mercenary on my part there's a there's a, a reading like a book club at my school and they're talking about Murder on the Orient Express um, for October. And I thought, maybe we could kill two birds with one stone. And I just have to say this. Whoever, some student designed a poster for the reading group. And it's it's the most amazing poster I've ever seen. It's a... It's. It looks like you're looking down. I'll put. A, I'll put a picture of it in the show notes. But it looks like you're looking down the barrel of a gun, and then you realize that you're looking at the front of a train, and the smoke like coming out the top of the train is also the smoke coming out the gun. It's. It's amazing. I mean, obviously, the person hasn't read the book because Gun, guns aren't a major <laughs> it's factor. Not, it's not really, a gun. <laughs> but a lot, a lot more stabby, stabby. <laughs> then boom. It's boom. amazing. <laughs> Uh, it's amazing. So anyway, um, that was why I did it. And but also, I just really love this story, and um, and we're excited about the film that's coming out. So there's all kinds of reasons to read. Yeah, it. at the time of this recording, there is a Kenneth Branagh adaptation of this that will be released soon. Listeners, if you're not familiar, Hercule Poirot is the detective at the center of many Agatha Christie novels and short stories. And Murder on the Orient Express was published in 1934 and tells the story of a murder that takes place on a train that is stranded due to a winter storm. Thus, Poirot knows that the murderer must be on the train. But which of the passengers or crew is it? Ooh. If that sounds interesting to you, uh, feel free to take a break and go read this and then come back and finish listening. (laughs) If you are interested in getting your hands on this copy, well, let me just tell you that according to the Guinness Book of World Records, Agatha Christie is the best-selling novelist. So you should be able to find ever (laughs) this novel. Yes. Yes. The best-selling novelist, period. Yes. Guinness Book of World Records, best-selling novelist. Period. And that's the end of the statement. That is the record. Full stop. Zero caveat. <laughs> yes, ever. You could add ever if you want, but it's not really needed. That's amazing. Yeah, so... Uh, How the, many books did you write? Uh, oh, quite a few. <laughs> well, I will just tell you that uh, Poirot is in 33 novels. I think she wrote over 60 novels. Uh, but Poirot also appeal- appears in one play that she wrote and more than 50 short stories. She wrote tons of short stories, too. Okay, how long are the novels, then? If there's the answer short to your stories question too, but like... is at least 72 novels. But, like, how long are these novels? Are these, like... Well, I this mean, one's I've, 265 pages. And I've listened... So it's a pretty I, uh, typical... I mean, it's it's not a long yeah, novel. We're not, but, we're not dealing with Brandon Sanderson or Patrick Rothfuss here. No. But, <laughs> but I mean, you know, more than more than one of the Harry Potter books is in that neighborhood, I'd say, probably. Uh, yeah, not, like, the from the fourth book on. No, but, <laughs> but like, the first three is probably in yeah. that neighborhood. Early, it's like early Harry Potter. Yeah, and I've listened to a few Agatha Christie novels recently. I used my library's app that you can check out audiobook MP3 files, and I grabbed a bunch of Agatha Christie novels, and I'd say most of them were between like six and ten hours to listen to the entire audiobook recording of the novel. So, you know, it's not on the higher end length. No. But but that's a good bit of entertainment. Yes. But I was just going to say, if she is the best-selling novelist ever – you should be able to find a copy of this fairly easily. I'm guessing most bookstores carry it. I'm guessing <laughs> that most libraries have it. <laughs> um, Agatha Christie is considered... Will, uh, oh. one, th- one thing on that note. Um, if you buy this on Amazon, make sure... I mean, this is for posterity. This is one of the great mystery novels of all time. Uh, make sure you get the right version of it. Don't get the independently published one. Get the real... <laughs> 
I didn't know there was an independently published one. Well, I found out that there is one. It doesn't have any page numbers in it. <laughs> and I I got it and I thought, I do not want this book. I want the real one. So Harper, Harper Collins is the one that publishes all of Agatha Christie's books now. And and they they're in like a really nice uh set and Anyway, so I so I contacted Amazon and said I wanted to return it, and they said, "Don't worry about sending it back. We'll just send you the one that you want." <laughs> like, uh, we know, we know what we're dealing with here. <laughs> I, I assume so you, we'll get a full refund and send you the one that and send you the one that you really wanted. So I assume <laughs> that um, these are not in public domain at this point. No, um, I, I and and if because possible. A ways off because some copyright holders would probably want to hang on to that. Well, I, I like this one was published in '34, which gets you into like the Disney range where it oh. should be public domain, but it keeps getting pushed back. Yeah, it's it's Life of the Creator, and then 70 years, unless it's a corporate it, entity, and then it keeps getting pushed. Yeah, okay, the very complicated copyright. Times. Yes. <laughs> Um, Agatha Christie, as we've kind of already hinted at, but she's considered one of, if not the greatest mystery writer ever. And she was British and she is best known for her characters, Miss Marple and Hercule Poirot, who is a Belgian, uh, detective and Miss Marple. Todd, how would you describe Miss Marple? I haven't read a lot of Miss Marple novels. She kind of reminds, when I think of Miss Marple, I think of Angela Lansbury solving crime. But <laughs> yes, yeah, and, and that's what I have to. I asked because that's most what came to my mind. Most of the, the Agatha Christie that I've read, or that I recently went on my binge through my local library, they were the Poirot stories, not Miss Marple. So I didn't know yeah. her as well. But that is kind of the mindset that I had. Let's see. According to uh, Agatha Christie's estate, her published books come in only behind two other works in terms of how well they sell. Guesses. Bible. Yes. Shakespeare. Yes, that is correct. According to her yeah, estate. Nailed it. It is Bible, Shakespeare, Agatha Christie. Which makes me really surprised that I, like, I have consumed Agatha Christie materials. I haven't, to my knowledge, read a novel. Like, mm. I haven't read Murder on the Orient Express. But you've seen plays. Like, they, they, yeah, you've done his uh, plays a and, lot. And, and when I did, um, when I did my, like, previewing work, um, at a TV station, there was, like, a PBS produced, mm -hmm. um, Poirot series. Yeah. And so I, I previewed probably half a dozen episodes of that. You know, I got I got to see an interpretation of the fastidious little Belgian man. <laughs> He's <laughs> great. I love the guy in those PBS ones. He, he was pretty fantastic. There was one which it was. It's weird to think about just throwing this out there, like the time frame, because there was one about a murder on a plane, mm -hmm. and I had to like reconcile. It's like, wait, but the way he dresses. I would think far too early for commercial air travel over the British, uh, over the uh, the English. Was Channel. it called the corpse flu first class? No, <laughs> no. but you know, it, I had to, like, if you were confused by that stuff. callback, that is a reference to our episode about murder. She wrote <laughs> a little bit of trivia about this book specifically in the United States. The book was originally titled "Murder on the Calais Coach." And that was done to avoid confusion with a re recently published novel that was titled The Orient Express. But oddly, that novel that was written by Graham Greene and called The Orient Express in America had originally been published in England under the title Stamble Train. <laughs> and they got retitled for American, <laughs> for American publishers. And so when Agatha Christie originally titled her book Murder on the Orient Express in England, the American publishers had to retitle it to avoid confusion with the book they had just retitled. <laughs> That's amazing. And Murder on the Orient Express, I I mean, my impression is that this is her most famous work. Yes. Um, there are others. Let's see. Then there were none. Uh, Ten Little Indians uh, that, that are also up there. But I think this is probably the most iconic of the Agatha Christie mysteries. Um, and the story has been adapted for radio plays, film, television, a video game. And there is a soon to be released film directed and starring, directed by and starring Kenneth Branagh as Poirot. And it also has a rather impressive cast list all around. Um, it's I astounding. Found, yes. Well, we can run through the cast in just a second, but I, I found that list of everywhere that this had been adapted on Wikipedia and it did not mention stage. And I am just going to guess that this has been adapted for the stage as well. Almost certainly. I mean, it's, it's ideal for the stage because you get like two sets. Yeah, this train say, car this is, and that train this car. This is a limited environment, so it's perfect. <laughs> okay, are, can can I run down the list of the cast? Yes, yes. please do. So this is the uh, again at the time of this recording in uh, well, we're recording in September of 2017. I think the film comes out in November. Is that correct, Todd? This is slated. I'm looking at IMDb. I think it's November. November well. 10th. November uh, 10th. 2017. Yes, and just for the record, I picked it. So. 
for what it's worth. <laughs> so every dollar for, you spend going there. For for our, our fantasy box office game. Okay, so here we go. Johnny Depp, Michelle Pfeiffer, Daisy Ridley, Penelope Cruz, William Defoe, Marwin Kenzari, Kenneth Branagh, Judy Dench, Lucy Boynton, Josh Gad, Olivia Coleman, Tom Bateman, Miranda Raisin, Derek Jacoby, Adam Garcia. It's a pretty good cast. Yeah. And I think, uh, what's the other guy's name? The guy from uh, Hamilton's in this too, isn't he? Uh, Leslie Odom Jr.? Yeah, I thought he was in here. Yep. I thought so too. He yeah, is. Oh, isn't he? There is. Dr. Okay. Arbuthnot. Yeah, he's in there. Okay. That is a very long cast for this film. Oh my goodness. There's probably 50 people in this film. How can that be? <laughs> There's got to be scenes on the train station before. And, and you know. Or, or maybe okay. cutaways to people's lives. Oh, yeah. Cutaways to the past when they're telling their stories, I'm sure. Okay. Did we? Did you say why, uh, how you came to this particular work? Oh, you know what? I forgot that. I think I read this in high school just because I'd heard about it so much. But then it was when I was on that Agatha Christie uh, kick a couple months ago. And I was burning through the novels that I could find as audio files from my library. I also um, listened to it at that point. Mm. my brother i think he read and then there were none when he was in high school so <laughs> i have two things that i i don't know if i'll ever be able to forgive my brother for one is and they were both reading assignments when he was in high school one was i watched the the movie of the fall of the house of usher with him <laughs> and the other one that was i watched the movie of and then there were none with him and <laughs> I will never be able to erase just the terror that I felt from both of those <laughs> from both of those works. So thank you, Spencer. But um, that was my first introduction to uh, Agatha Christie. And then when I was in college, I so usually <laughs> there have been times in my life when I felt really, really stressed out. And to cope with that, I just read something that nobody has told me I have to read. <laughs> and uh and this was one that I picked up when I was in college, and I was feeling like that. And I really enjoyed it. And uh, so that's how I came to this. All right. Well, listeners, we want to thank each and every one of you for listening. And we would especially like to thank those of you who support us on Patreon. If you would like to support us financially, we invite you to go to patreon.com slash protagonist and support our show with at least $1 per month. All supporters on Patreon at any level receive access to our special quick casts, which are shorter episodes in which we break down newly released films and trailers. All patrons who support us with $5 a month or more get to choose a topic for us to discuss. So, Todd, would you like to give us a full spoiler synopsis of... Uh, murder on the Orient Express. I would love to. Um, I will just preface my long synopsis by saying I feel like this is a kind of story that you can either summarize in 30 seconds or or not. <laughs> How about you do your summary and then I will give the 30 second summary afterwards. Okay. Uh, so this is... Summary gives away a few spoilers. Yes. <laughs> this is divided into three parts. And there is a really big, huge spoiler here. So uh, if you if you are thinking you don't want to be spoiled, then you can wait till the film comes out or go get the book and read it, or you can go watch the PBS version or something. But I, th there's a huge spoiler, so surprise. <laughs> As in, it's a murder mystery, and we're going to find out who the we're murderer find out. Is. is. Yes. Okay, so this is divided into three parts. Part one is called The Facts. So Hercule Poirot, a famous Belgian detective, leaves the train station at Aleppo. It's cold, there's talk of snow in the mountains, and he meets a couple of English people, Mary Debenham and Colonel Arbuthnot. I'm going to call him Arbuthnot. I don't know if that's how they pronounce it. Uh, at first, they seem like they don't know each other, but then Poirot notices them one night. Uh, they're talking to each other in kind of worried, hushed tones. It's obvious that they know each other. Uh, and then and then they arrive at their station, and Poirot spends the night in a hotel. And the next day, he's forced to set off sooner than he had originally anticipated, and so he has to kind of squeeze his way onto this train that's already kind of full. He has to take the Orient Express in a three-day journey across Europe. So despite it being winter, the train is unusually full with an odd assortment of people from different nationalities. Uh, there's no first-class cabin for Poirot, and so he's forced to stay in second class and share a room with a man named McQueen. On the train with Poirot is a man called Bouc, Monsieur Bouc, who is a friend of Poirot's, and he also is like the head of the train line. Uh, they eat lunch together, and Poirot surveys the group uh, on the train, musing at how interesting it is that all 13 of these people are stuck together for three days. After everyone leaves the dining car, a man called Ratchet comes up to Poirot, and he tells Poirot that threats have been made against him and asks for Poirot's help to keep him safe, offering uh, the detective a large sum of money. 
but Poro gets kind of a bad vibe from Ratchet. This guy just like he just uh, like evil just kind of seeps out of him, and nobody likes him. Uh, and so Poro refuses the offer because he doesn't want to work for a creep. So that night, Poro wakes up to the sound of a cry from the room next to his where Ratchet is sleeping. And he pokes his head out into the hall, and he watches the conductor come to check on Ratchet. There's a sound of a bell, and then a voice from Ratchet's room saying in French, everything is okay, I've just fallen. And then Poirot goes back to sleep. Next morning, Poirot realizes that trains had stopped in the middle of the night due to snow on the tracks. They may be there for days. Monsieur Bouc, uh, who works, uh, who I said uh, owns the train company, uh, calls Poirot into his car where there are a couple of other people from the train uh, and a doctor. And they inform Poirot that sometime between midnight and 2 a.m., Mr. Ratchet, the American who had asked for Poirot's help the day before, has been stabbed to death in his room. And he was stabbed a dozen times in a very haphazard way. And Book asks Poirot to take the case, and the Belgian accepts. So they're stuck on a train in the middle of the snow. They, there's, there's nothing around. They're lock, it's, it's the classic like lockbox mystery. So Poirot's first interview is with Hector McQueen, an American. He worked for Ratchet and was last to see the man alive. He shows no surprise at Ratchet's murder and offers a couple of letters that Ratchet had received threatening his life. Poirot doubts that McQueen is the murderer. Then Poirot invites Dr. Constantine to join him in investigating the body and the room of the dead man. There are a number of clues pointing in different directions. There's a woman's handkerchief with a letter H on it. There's a man's pipe cleaner. Uh, Ratchet's pocket watch was stopped at 1.15 a.m., apparently giving the time of the crime. Some of the stab wounds look like they were done by a man, others by a woman. Some by a left-handed person, some uh, by a right-handed person. Uh, Poirot informs the doctor that he isn't interested so much in the clues as he is in the psychology of the murderer. But he is able to find one really good clue, which is a scrap of paper with a name on it, uh, Daisy Armstrong. It was, it was a, a piece of paper that somebody had tried to burn, but one little part of the letter was not burned, and it has the name Daisy Armstrong on it. And then Poirot deduces that Ratchet's real name is Cazetti. So uh, Poirot then explains to Monsieur Bouc that Cazetti is a gangster who had kidnapped and murdered a little American girl called Daisy Armstrong. And later, Daisy's mother had committed suicide, and the housemaid had also committed suicide. And Poirot is now wondering if the crime was committed by rival gangs or if it's a private vengeance. So part two is called The Evidence. Poirot now interviews each of the passengers of the car. He begins with the wagon lee conductor, whose name is Pierre Michel. So the, the conductor is... Uh, in charge of like one train car. And uh, his name is Pierre Michel. Then he interviews Ratchet's secretary, uh, Mr. McQueen, then Ratchet's valet, Mr. Masterman, and, and an old crazy American woman whose name is Mrs. Hubbard, and whose room had an adjoining door with Ratchet's, and a Swedish woman named Greta Olson. Everyone has alibis. All the alibis work out. There are no clear suspects, although Book thinks it's the Italian, because Italians, as everyone knows, are very violent and they stab people. <laughs> so now Poro summarizes what they know. At 9.15, the train leaves Belgrade. At 9.40, the valet leaves Ratchet with a sleeping uh, draft uh, beside him. And then at 10 o'clock, McQueen leaves Ratchet. And at 10.40, Greta Olsen sees Ratchet. She's the last one to see him alive. And he, she says he was awake reading a book. At uh, 12.10, the train leaves Vinkovci. Uh, and it's and it's running late. At 12.30, the train runs into the snowdrift. At 12.37, Ratchet's bell rings, and the co the conductor answers it, and Ratchet says, Scenarien, uh, je me suis trompé. And at 1.17, Mrs. Hubbard thinks a man is in her carriage and rings for the conductor. That's the that's the timeline that we're working with. So then he continues with the interviews. There's an old Russian princess named Dragomirov who turns out to be very close to Mrs. Armstrong, the mother of the kidnapped girl that, that, uh, that Ratchet killed. Then he talks to the Count and Countess Andrenyi, who are a Hungarian couple who deny knowing anything about anything. He interviews Colonel Arbuthna, the man from the first train, who denies knowing Miss Debenham, but Poirot really knows that they know each other, but he doesn't say anything. He interviews Mr. Hardman, who claims to be a detective hired to protect Ratchet. Uh, he, he interviews the Italian Foscarelli and Miss Debenham, who is cold and calculating and claims to know nothing. And there's a German lady called Hildegard Schmidt, uh, who tells the same story that everyone else has. So then we get this great summary of the evidence. So evidence, piece number one, Ratchet was stabbed in 12 places and died. Piece of evidence number two, the time of the crime. So 
it may have been at 1.15 a.m., which is supported by the evidence of the German woman and the evidence of the broken watch. Or it could have been later and the watch was faked, or it could have been earlier and the watch was faked. Uh, evidence number three is that there are testimony from four or five people that there was a small man with a womanish voice in a wagon lee conductor's uniform, and Book wants to know where this person disappeared to, and Poirot wonders if that person even existed. And then piece of uh, uh, evidence number four is there's all uh, several people uh, testify, including Poirot himself, of having seen a woman, a mysterious woman, in a red kimono. And the question remains, where are the uniform and the kimono? Who was the person in the uniform? Who was the person in the kimono? Because nobody can uh, identify these people. So Book proposes that they search the luggage. And Poirot makes a prophecy that they will find the uniform in a woman's luggage. And he says it's probably um, Schmidt. And that the kimono will be in the luggage of a man. And he even goes so far as to say that if Schmidt is innocent, the uniform will almost certainly be in her luggage. Just then, Mrs. Hubbard barges in and tells them that she has found a bloody knife in her sponge bag. So Poirot and Book find the knife in Mrs. Hubbard's cabin, as she said it was. Then they proceed to check the passenger's luggage. Uh, they find pipe cleaners in Colonel Arbuthnot's luggage. And remember, there were there were pipe cleaners in Ratchet's room, so... Not looking great for Arbuthnot. Uh, Book doesn't want to disturb the Count and Countess, but Poirot insists, stating that he is sure they are involved. While going around, Poirot confronts Miss Debenham about what he had seen on the train previous to their getting on the Orient Express. And uh, and she tells him, she, he, she says, I know, I know that looks bad, but I can't tell you what it was about, but I promise it was not about murder. <laughs> and then, uh, and then, <laughs> we Okay. Hi, that's good. Good summation. Okay. Uh, and then Poirot finds the wagon lee conductor uniform in Mrs. Smith's luggage, as he had predicted. But he is unable to find the red kimono until bah, 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 he opens his own suitcase and finds it neatly folded there on top. <sighs> okay, now part three is called Hercule Poirot Sits Back and Thinks. So Monsieur Book, Book is totally perplexed. And Poirot goes away to write for a bit, and he returns with a summary of what he learned from the interviews. Basically, everyone has an alibi. And then he also writes down 10 key questions. One, the handkerchief marked with the initial H. Whose is it? Two, the pipe cleaner. Was it dropped by Colonel Arbuthnot or by someone else? Three, who wore the red kimono? Four, who was the man or woman masquerading in a Vagonli uniform? Why, five, why do the hands of the watch point to 115? Six, was the murder committed at that time? Seven, was it earlier? Eight. Was it later? Nine. Can we be sure that Ratchet was stabbed by more than one person? Ten. What other explanation of his wounds can there be? So those are the ten key questions. So And then they all just sit for 15 minutes and think in silence. And Book and Constantine try their hardest, but they make little or no headway on the questions. They can't focus. Uh, and Poirot tells them, think, think, and they sit quietly. But only Poirot can keep his thoughts focused on the task at hand. He sits very still, and then he tells the men that he has a theory. So then he says, this was meant to look like an outside job. The snow messed everything up. They were also meant, not meant to find the fragment of the letter linking Ratchet to the Armstrong case. And the handkerchief did not belong to Mrs. Hubbard, Miss Debenham, whose name is Hermione, or to Hildegrand Schmidt. No, no, no. It belongs to Elena Andreni, the Countess, who Poirot suspects is really named Helena Goldenberg, who is faking her Hungarian accent and lack of English, and is really Mrs. Armstrong's younger sister, Helena. Uh, then Poirot confronts the confronts the Andrenies, and Helena says, "Oh, you got me. You're right." <laughs> <laughs> and she admits to having hidden her identity, but she says, "I know. I know it looks bad because I hid my identity, and this guy that killed my niece is dead. But I promise you, I have nothing to do with his murder." And <laughs> Uh, then she, so she also denies that the handkerchief is hers. She says, it's not mine. And Poirot believes her. And he says, I'm going to need your help in recalling details about her, your past that might help me find the real killer. And so she, then she talks about her past. So Book thinks Helena is guilty. But then Princess Dragomirov, this Russian old lady princess, comes in and claims the handkerchief is hers. Since she is Russian, and in Russian, the letter N 
and her first name is Natalia, is written as a letter H. She tells him that in her opinion, justice has been served, but that she and Helena are innocent. Now Poirot makes a new plan to try to catch the passengers in a lie. He asks Colonel Arbuthnot about the pipe cleaner, but Arbuthnot says he doesn't know how he got in the room. And then he asks what he and Miss Debenham had been arguing about, and Arbuthnot says, I know it looks bad, but I promise you it doesn't have anything to do with the murder, and it's her secret, and I'm not telling you. So then Poirot says that he knows that Mary was... and. Poirot just drops this like a like a bomb. Uh, the governess, the governess in the Armstrong household at the time of the kidnapping. Arbuthnot freezes, and Poirot summons Mary Debenham and tells her he knows who she is, and she says, "Well, you got me, but I promise, I promise, I don't have anything to do with the murder." Then she tells him she had uh, that she hadn't even recognized Helena since three years had passed since she'd seen her. Uh, and so then she starts crying and she runs out of the room. So Poirot now goes on to reveal that the Italian was really the chauffeur of the Armstrong family, which the big man confirms. The Swedish lady was Daisy Armstrong's nurse. What, then the valet comes in. He doesn't even get, let Poirot guess. He just says, okay, I was Colonel Armstrong's Batman and valet. Uh, Poirot confronts the detective Hardman, but Hardman says, no, 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 no. I'm not, I'm not connected with this Armstrong guy. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but by now, Poirot has also pegged Mrs. Hubbard and the maid as the housekeeper and cook in the Armstrong's... No, somebody. Anyway. And he asks for everyone... Everyone's, everyone's related to the Armstrongs. And he asks for everyone to gather since he knows who the killer is and he wants to run through two possible solutions. We're almost to the end. The first solution is that it was an outside job. It was done by someone when the train was stopped at its last stop previous to the snowdrift. So the, the, the train stopped at the place. Somebody snuck on. They were dressed in that Vagon Lee uniform. They killed Ratchet, and then they hid, and then they snuck off the train when, uh, when they got to the next stop. And he says that the time, the time on the watch was wrong because, or was at one fifteen because Ratchet may have forgotten to change his watch with the time zones, and thus it would have stopped at the time at the at the actual time of death because it was an hour off. Everyone is impressed, but the doctor refuses to believe it. There's just too much evidence that doesn't fit. So Poirot offers his second suggestion. At the beginning of the trip, Book had mentioned that they had an odd assortment of people of different nationalities. Where else could you find such a mix of people? Thinks Poirot only in America. So he had started casting the people on the train as if they were members of the Armstrong household. And it turns out this was not the work of a single killer. It was the work of a 12-person self-appointed jury. Because So Cassetti, who is Ratchet, had essentially been convicted but gotten off because he had money. He bribed so, certain officials right. and slipped through. And escaped the country. And so this is this self-appointed 12-person jury. Everyone was in on it. Uh, they all provided alibis for each other. Each had entered Ratchet's room in the dark and struck with a knife, never knowing which blow had killed him. Uh, the woman in the scarlet kimono was only a red herring, as were the handkerchief, the watch, the pipe cleaner, and the small man in the with a womanish voice dressed in the Vagonli uniform. But if this is to work out, then the real Vagonli conductor, Michel, must have been in on it as well. That means that there were 13 and not 12 murderers. Someone is innocent. So there's 13 people on the train. One of them is innocent, and that someone, concludes Poirot, was Helena. Her husband took her place. Uh, and then Pierre Michel, it turns out, was the brother of the French maid who had killed herself, and Hardman, the supposed detective, had been her boyfriend. And Mrs. Hubbard, it turns out, is Mrs. Armstrong's mother, Linda Arden, a famous actress. And she then falls out of character and admits to everything, and she begs Poirot, Bouc, and Constantine to blame her and none others. And Bouc, as head of the train, says that he believes Poirot's first story... And the doctor concurs, and Poirot retires from the case. The end. Really good summary, Todd. Uh, now I'm going to offer my 30-second version. Okay. Murder on the Orient Express. There's a train that is stuck in snow, and a murder happens. Someone on the train committed it. the murder. Who was it? All of them. The end. <laughs> the end. <laughs> that was not 30 seconds. <laughs> I would add, everybody has watertight alibis. Yes. Yes, and everyone has watertight alibis because they all committed the murder. Because they all committed the murder <laughs> together. Uh, I, as you were doing this, I, I remembered uh, two, or really just one bit of trivia that I had forgotten, I, and kind of some related things about possible inspirations for this story. One is this was written a couple years after um, the famous uh, Lindbergh baby kidnapping. Yeah. Uh, and the other is that a couple of years before this was written, Agatha Christie got stuck on the Orient Express <laughs> because of a storm. Oh, she did? Yeah. Oh, that's her, amazing. Her story, she was stuck for 24 hours, but um, a few years before that, there was a train that was trapped for six days, uh, an Orient Express train. 
because of a blizzard. So there's maybe, a thing maybe that while she was stuck said. for 24 hours, she heard the story of the time we got stuck for six days. <laughs> I'm trying to find there's a there's a quote where they're sitting at dinner and he says, this is this is an interesting thing. And it would be more interesting if there was a murder. <laughs> <laughs> and I can imagine Agatha Christie thinking that. Yes. <laughs> I, yeah, definitely. Um, oh, so, it's, it's right here. He says, um, he's, I found it. They're, they're, Book and Poirot are together, and they're looking at the train. And he says, oh, um, Book says, oh, if I had but the pen of a Balzac, I would depict this scene. He waved his hand. And then uh, Poirot says, it is an idea at that. Um, and Book says, ah, you agree? It has not been done, I think. And yet it lends itself to romance, my friend. All around us are people of all classes, of all nationalities, of all ages. For three days, these people, these strangers to one another, are brought together. They sleep and eat under one roof. They cannot get away from each other. At the end of three days, they part. They go their several ways, never, perhaps, to see each other again. And yet, said Poirot, suppose an accident. <laughs> like... I don't know. I think some people's brains are just wired for that kind of stuff. <laughs> I think Agatha Christie's brain was wired for that kind of thought. Process. I know. <laughs> I, she's a kind of person that I would really, I don't know. Someday when I'm on the other side, I want to look her up <laughs> <laughs> and just see what she's like. Cause she just, she has a knack for, and we talked about, uh, sweetness at the bottom of the pie and how, the the pros and the characters and everything were great and the mechanics were sort of okay and i feel like the mechanics in an agatha christie story are rarely flawed like it's just she thinks these things through so well and my, i love them one of my favorite moments when I, I i cannot remember the title of that of this agatha christie novel but when i was doing those audiobooks there was one where um these people uh there's a murder and these people like, well, they don't know who did it, but they know they're going to look guilty. So they hide the body in this secret room in their library. And then the police come and then like the police start interviewing and they start to give alibis. And then one of them's like, you know what? We, we're not gonna be able to lie to you. <laughs> like there's just too many of us. This is going to fall apart. <laughs> so let's just tell you the truth. We found a body here. We don't know who the murderer is, but we found a body here. It's in the secret room. And then they open the door to the secret room and the body's gone. <laughs> <laughs> and like everyone's looking at each other did you no did you <laughs> oh that's amazing and it's just such a fantastic moment and then it gets explained in a way that works like it's it's airtight the way it you yeah. know it, it all fits together but you get these moments in a murder mystery that maybe you could start to feel like well i know what this one's like because and particularly for so many agatha christie ones it's because like every crime show does a variation on murder on the orient express every hour-long crime drama borrows the ideas some ideas from agatha christie yeah yeah i i definitely i mean i don't producer andrew jumping in yeah i don't i don't watch a ton of crime shows but at some point in my life like the hour when i got home from high school was an hour when csi was airing like the las vegas one and there was one and it was on a plane yeah but it's a version of this yeah yeah is exactly And, and she just yeah like she had a mind for this like you said, Todd, it would be very interesting to just sit and talk with her. I was listening to, I think it was on West Wing Weekly, but it was, it was a line from West Wing that came up. And then it was mentioned that Lin-Manuel Miranda actually borrowed this line and put it into Hamilton. It was, I think, a mind at work. Like, that that's what you want to see is a mind at work. Yes. Uh, and I just get the feeling that Agatha Christie's mind was always at work. Um, and I think it, like an active, engaged mind is going to look different in different like, – like, he could be an active mind for science and an active mind for writing and an active mind for – analysis and all these other things but you you kind of know when you're working with someone who is thinking about things constantly and i i just i don't i've never even like read interviews with agatha christie but from reading her works i just feel like she was a person with an active mind (laughs) yes absolutely i i just i wonder like when i think of poe i and this this may be true or not you're the you're the poe expert here but when i think of like poe on a friday night i just imagine him in his house, empty, with a raven on the <laughs> on the windowsill saying, nevermore. And, you know, he's probably hopped up on something. Well, I will. And- okay, <laughs> real quick, tap the brakes. 
just a reminder from our Murders on the Rue Morgue episode, when we talked about Poe, he had a real-life archenemy who ruined his reputation after his death <laughs> by writing by writing his first eulogy and the first collection of his works that had a, basically a eulogy filled with, with false facts what about Poe. What was that Poe. guy's name? Uh, yes. Rufus Wilmot Griswold. That's what it was. Yes, Griswold. Because yeah. it was yes. such a good name. Yeah, for, great name for, for an archenemy. Especially for Poe. Yes. And, and so a lot of our pop culture idea of Poe that gets handed down is based on lies told by his real-life archenemy that was trying to ruin his reputation. Yes, but but nevertheless, the, that is the image that I get in my mind. And when I think of Agatha Christie, I don't think of anything like that. I, I think of somebody who was like, like, uh, like the characters that she writes, you know, sort of um, happy and... Quirky. Um, yeah, qu- quirky, but sort of not dark like i don't this doesn't feel like a like romantic literature to me in the in the sense of uh, the gothic um, romance gothic romance yes it feels it, it's like i know it's murder but it's sort of sunny murder <laughs> like well i don't know there's I, just something about it that feels very sterile i agree with that and i think that does launch us into one of the discussion topics i want to make sure we touched on it's this idea and i think this is one of the reasons why it feels less grim than some other murders but like this is presented as kind of a moral murder yes <laughs> like, this was the right choice and it also struck me a little while ago on audible i got the complete works of william or not of shakespeare but the complete works of uh of sherlock holmes that's what i'm trying to say sherlock holmes read by <laughs> stephen fry arthur yeah, yeah but it's every sherlock holmes story read by stephen fry and i've slowly been making my way through it because he wrote a lot of sherlock holmes stories but more than once, you had this kind of this murder on the Orient Express outcome for Sherlock Holmes. And it kind of surprises me every time where he's like, we figured out the crime, but we're going to let this one slide. Yeah, <laughs> because because we know this was the right thing. They, they, like, like, there's always a different reason, but it's always kind of like, well, this was a moral crime. <laughs> so yeah. we're not going to turn them over to the police. And sometimes it's murder. <laughs> you know, that, that they're just kind of saying this one's OK. And what yeah. do we make of that as the crime genre is, you know, all about justice and uh, catching the criminals. And yet one of the most famous examples, Murder on the Orient Express, and one of the most famous detectives, Sherlock Holmes, we see occasionally saying, we're going to not pursue this through the legal system. See, I, you say that it's about justice, but I would say it's nominally about justice. But in reality, it's about something else. It's about... Uh, it's about the game, or it's about the obsession. I mean, depending on who the the, the detective is that you're talking about. Um, like Poirot, he seems to really enjoy what he does. Kind of in the way that like Rick Castle does, <laughs> where he gets kind of giddy about it, or Sean Spencer. Um, so I would the references to the TV show Castle and the TV show Psych, <laughs> for anyone yeah, who is I, I would put I would put Poirot kind of in that vein of detective who he's like generally excited about stuff um and then there are other there are other detectives who are far more uh burdened by what they do um and wallander wallander for sure yeah and or um it will be interesting to see kenneth Branagh do poirot after he's after we've seen him as wallander because wallander is just totally tortured by what he does but in one of my favorite scenes of all of television recently that I've seen uh, is when Wallander is talking with his father. Have you seen Have you seen any of Wallander? I've seen the the very first episode. So there's it, there's a scene from Amazon Prime. <laughs> so I haven't seen anymore. <laughs> it's on Netflix. Is it on Netflix? Okay. Yeah, it's on Netflix now. But um, there's a scene. His father is suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia, and he's an artist, and he paints. And he paints the same landscape over and over and over and over again. He, he takes his, his easel and his paints and he paints the same seascape. And, uh, and there's this beautiful scene where Wallander is, is kind of um, he's thinking about his job as a police officer. And he's realizing that what he does in solving crimes is exactly what his dad does. In that there's something... There's something kind of beautiful in it, but there's also something kind of tragic in it in that his, his father is creating something beautiful, he, but but he can't escape it. He's, he's locked into this thing. And Wallander knows 
that he's doing something good by solving crimes and helping people. But he also realizes that even if he wanted to, he couldn't get out and he really wants out, but he can't. And it's, and it's, it's just this beautiful piece of um, filmmaking and it, it creates a very different feeling for the detective than what we get with Paro, who is just like practically giddy at the, at the thought of the challenge that's ahead of him in trying to solve this. There's definitely um, Sherlock Holmes is he's kind of both because he's, I agree. He's burdened when he doesn't have a mystery and then he's excited when he has something that doesn't make sense. That's the only thing. And when he doesn't have the mystery, Sherlock Holmes will turn to drugs because his mind is so bored yes. <laughs> with the world. And that's something from <laughs> like that gets used more in the BBC Sherlock or the elementary version of Sherlock than a lot of other adaptations of Sherlock, the, uh, the, the drug addiction. But it's pr- definitely present in Conan Doyle's and uh, Watson disapproves of it <laughs> and like chews him out all the time, you know, for, uh-huh. like, like if, if it's been a while since they've had a case, Watson like checks in on him. He's like, I don't want you turning back <laughs> yeah. to, to the, to the drugs. Interesting. I have, uh, uh, the true confessions. I don't know if I've ever read a Sherlock Holmes story. <laughs> and I have seen, I have watched a lot of detective shows and read a lot of detective books, but I have not read a Sherlock Holmes story. I need to uh, remedy that at some point. All right. So you're saying when we talk about crime uh, fiction, and sometimes we have this idea of like the moral murder and the detectives are letting that go the quest they were on wasn't always for justice. It was to solve the riddle that was presented to them. Well, yeah, it's, it's this idea of the crime story as metaphor, right? And it's a metaphor for something else. And, and so I just, I don't, I, I mean, I think I'm not, I think that Poirot is interested in justice, but I think that crime stories in general are not, uh, they're not moral tales about, like the importance of justice, they're really about about quest, about f- uncovering mystery. Uh, some people read uh, mysteries as um, and crime fiction as like the process of art and un- uncovering something, and it, it it could be a lot of different things. But I don't I don't think it's it's always just about justice because we get we get moments like this where <laughs> it's really not. Or it's, I, it's about a different kind of justice. Yeah. And I do enjoy the presentation that Pro gives at the end where he's like, here's two versions. Here's the first version where everyone is innocent. <laughs> and, and everyone's like, well, that, sure, Poirot, <laughs> you can't really think that. <laughs> he's like, well, here's the second version where everyone's guilty. And they're like, well, let's go with the first version. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of like Clue. It kind of reminds me of the end of Clue. Where he with says, the- <laughs> <laughs> there's different versions of what may have happened. Yeah. I like it. Um, what do you think of? Uh, so you were talking about Watson and Sherlock. What do you think of um, Book and, I guess, to a lesser degree, Constantine and Poirot and kind of their relationship and how 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 well or not well do you feel that works? Um, it doesn't feel as the relationship doesn't feel as significant as something like the Watson and 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 Holmes or like you know Beckett and Castle or. You know, a lot of the shows that are built on the relationship and they just happen to be solving crime each week. <laughs> but, but uh, you know, a lot of these these crime stories, uh, what brings you what can keep bringing you back is that core relationship that provides like a through line. And this feels like, you know, these, these are pieces that are being used in this particular story. And uh, I, I don't feel like a huge connection. Did you feel there was a strong connection there? No, Book is interesting to me in that I think that what Agatha Christie is trying to do is use Book as the voice of the reader. Yes. And and ask the questions that the reader would want to ask that Perot wouldn't need to give voice to. Right. But the, but then I wonder at that when Book is constantly wrong about everything <laughs> and you know that he's <laughs> wrong about everything. And and I wonder at how uh, how effective he is as the voice of the reader when once after a little while you start to realize, you know what? This guy's kind of an idiot and <laughs> he doesn't have a clue of what's going on and everything that he says is going to be wrong. I mean, there is, I guess there is in this novel also just a, a kind of, I mean, the way that it's designed is for you to feel a sense of kind of futility, right? Like it's, it, it can't be there. there it, it's impossible 
because everybody's alibi works out and and to feel that frustration there are times when i feel like it's on and then there are other times where i feel like come on book like i'm not that great at finding out who the murderers are but even <laughs> i know <laughs> that it's not the italian <laughs> well he had his own prejudices he needed to work out <laughs> he did <laughs> um and i i've in the other Agatha Christie stories that I've uh, listened to or read, I, I remember a few where that role was filled in a more satisfying or entertaining way than mm -hmm. Book. There's one where it's a first person narration. I think it was first person or it was very limited omniscient and was only following this one character who was the uh, the idiot. <laughs> and uh, he, like, he was the Book, the one who kept, like, kept getting things wrong and he tries to solve this mystery and he kept going to Poirot, but every time he went to Poirot, he's like, I figured out something Poirot was missed. Uh -huh. And then Poirot would, like, politely find a way to tell him, no. <laughs> no, you're wrong. Um, but one of my favorite moments in this, uh, in that in that one, was Poirot said, we must be very intelligent in how we lay our trap, and you will be particularly useful in this role. We need <laughs> to convince them we do not know what is going on. We, we need to convince the perpetrator that we are on the wrong trail, and I'm going to leave that to you. And the guy, like, puffs up with pride because Poirot's trusting him. <laughs> <laughs> but as a reader, it's just so entertaining to see, uh, you, you know, our traditional kind of Watson, you know, role being played out by an idiot who doesn't know that he's an idiot. That's funny. <laughs> I love the I love it at the end um, when Poirot sits back to think, and we get what's going on in the mind of of Con of Constantine, and I think we get it in Book also. Yeah, so Mr. Book's thoughts had run something as follows. Assuredly, I must think. But as far as that goes, I have already thought. Poirot obviously thinks this English girl is mixed up in the matter. I cannot help feeling that that is most unlikely. The English are extremely cold. Perhaps it probably is because they have no figures. But that is not the point. It seems that the Italian could have done it. A pity. I suppose the English valet... Then after a while, he's like... I wonder when we'll get out of this. There must be some rescue work in progress. They're slow in these countries. It is hours before anyone thinks of doing anything, and the police of these countries, they will be most trying to deal with, and they will make a grand affair of all this. It's not even, maybe we'll be in the newspapers. <laughs> and Constantine's like, this guy's queer. Uh, a genius? A crank? Will he solve this mystery? Impossible. And by the end, he's like, when I get home, I must get hold of Demetrius Zagoni. He has been to America. He has all the modern ideas. I wonder what Zia is doing at this moment. If my wife ever finds out... <laughs> his thoughts had went on to entirely private matters. And then it says, Hercule Poirot sat very still. One might have thought he was asleep. And then suddenly, after a quarter of an hour's complete immobility, his eyebrows began to move slowly up his forehead. A little sigh escaped him. He murmured beneath his breath, But, after all, why not? And if so, why? If so, that would explain everything. And then he goes on to, like, solve the mystery. But I think, it's, I think it says something about Poirot and about uh, like the great detective that he has this kind of stillness of mind and ability to focus. And that one of the things that makes us poor detectives as we're reading this novel is that our attention is drawn to a million different things and, and Agatha Christie's messing with us on purpose, right? The, the woman in the red kimono and the wagon Lee uniform and all this stuff it gets kind of crystallized in the thoughts of Book and and Constantine, but that's us when we're reading this novel. <laughs> is we just can't think and we can't we can't be still and think it all the way through. And if we if we could, we would probably figure it out sooner than we did. I don't know. Maybe you thought maybe you knew like immediately that they had all done it, but I didn't. Well, I I, I can't even remember if the first time I read it, I didn't know that it was everyone. <laughs> I remember I being know. surprised. Yeah, and it's not that I figured it out. It's that I must have heard it or, you know, something had tipped me if I if I didn't remember. But I don't remember a surprise in finding out it was everyone. So I'm guessing I must have heard it beforehand. Sorry, listeners, if that's you right now. <laughs> <laughs> we warned you multiple times that this, there was going to be big spoilers. Um, there's something that happens in crime stories all the time, and it always makes me wonder... Well, it's just so common that I think we've stopped to question it, but maybe we should question it more. And it, it definitely <laughs> happens in this. And it's the, um, these people are acting suspicious. They've told us a story. We don't believe it. We accuse them or hint that we know the real story. And then they spill everything. And we trust that second story. <laughs> and, uh -huh. and, 
And I, I mean, in this one, Poirot has worked out more, but I mean, think about all of the hour long crime shows that you've seen where, you know, they bring someone in for questioning, then they let them go because they don't have enough to hold them. And then later on, they get like one other clue and they say, we know you did it. And then they tell exactly how they did it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> you know, immediately. In like Why? a big monologue. Yes, in a big monologue. They, they, they tell the police everything, every missing piece. Yes. Um, and in this one, it's more Poirot does that and everyone just kind of nods in agreement <laughs> that, that this is what happened. Um, and is it just convenience that this happens that we get like one red herring false lead from whoever it really is? And then for hour long dramas, it's time constraints. And for novels, it's like just ease of narration that we're just going to get everything spilled at once to explain it. What do you think? And then well, why do we always buy it and trust <laughs> it? <laughs> well, at, at the towards the very beginning of this, um, Poirot, when, when they're looking at the body, he says, I'm not interested in evidence. I'm interested in psychology. And we get the impression, whether it's true or not, that he's really good at psychology. And I think that that's intentional at the beginning, so that in the end, when he starts, you know, moving everybody around like puppets, then we believe that that that's that that's happening because he's told us that he's good at psychology, and if he says it, then it must be true. And so, it kind of she makes the story believable because we believe Poirot because he said that he's good at this. <laughs> And he's and he tends to be right about a lot of things. I don't I don't know. I mean, it, it's an interesting thought. Like when confronted with the truth, then they they fill in more truth that we were lacking before. But everything they've told us before was untrustworthy. But now well, we the, trust the one thing the thing that makes this story different, and Poirot points it out several times, is that this situation here is unique in that there is they he has no ability to verify anybody's story. Mm-hmm. And if he were in the city, especially you can imagine now he could pull out his phone and, you know, look up somebody's name and see if it's the, really their real name, or if that's a real person or the, the, there's just so much more access to information, even in 1934 England than there is uh, what they have on the on the train. And so there are, there are a couple of moments where he points at the fact like Hardman, he says, I believe Hardman's story because he has to know that I'm going to be able to verify it, right? Like, it, the, because Hardman says, oh, I'm really an undercover detective and I work for this agency. And Poirot says, there's no way he's going to lie about that because as soon as we get off this train, I can verify if he works for a detective agency. And so I, I'm going to believe what he says. And, and it, that makes sense for Hardman, but I don't know. I, I kind of agree with you and I don't know how much sense it makes for everybody else. <laughs> to just say, well, you got me, but, but also it's the this idea of the unraveling of things, and that once you pull at a string, then everything kind of unravels, and there there's there's a sense of defeat in these people, and inevitability, and inevitability, right? That eventually this is all going to come out because he pulled on one string, it, and it all leads back to that one shred of paper that he finds that has the Armstrong name on it. If that doesn't exist, I don't know that he ever solves this crime because he doesn't know who the victim is. And if he doesn't know who the victim is, then there's no way for him to know even what questions to ask. But, but once they're on to the fact that he's on to the, to the fact that this is, this is all related to Armstrong, then I think they just say, <laughs> once he's got one of us he's got all of us and so there's no point in trying to hide it yeah by no means was this the most egregious uh perpetrator of that trope no. <laughs> I, I, I really think it's the hour-long tv dramas where it's like well we've got this one piece of evidence but we don't understand the motivation and they show the one piece of evidence and the guy immediately is like well i, I didn't even mean to i was just rage in the moment <laughs> he like walks them through every beat they start crying <laughs> yes she, she left me she never loved me and you're like whoa man you gave up really fast but 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 i wonder if i mean i wonder how much of psychology is in that in that when you have when you when you're carrying the burden of a secret like that and the, like, in some way you want to release yes. the secret. Yes. And so when you feel like, you know, they know. And so, like, I'm just going to give them everything. <laughs> and, yeah. and it's almost like a chance for release. I mean, it has to be exhausting to carry a secret like that. And there's hope that you can get away with it and 
go live on a beach in Mexico or something. But for the most part, it has to just be a horrible burden to carry. And once once you feel like there's a chance that the game is up, then maybe you maybe you just really do let it go. I I don't I don't know. I'm not a detective. It would be interesting to to talk to one and find out if that's really how people are or if they hold on to their secrets to the very last breath. But everybody here, I mean, once Poros once once he gets going on the fact that all these people are telling lies, it is remarkable how fast <laughs> everybody <laughs> falls into line. And I think um, one other thing that makes that work a little bit more in this version is going back to that idea that this was a moral murder, um, that they felt justified, and Perot is presenting this case as fairly justified in their action. That yes. They four, I mean, they over and over, like, refers to them, like, they made a jury of 12 <laughs> who found him guilty when the real legal system had basically found him guilty, but he slipped through because of bribery is, is the, the implication, right? And mm-hmm. so they're actually carrying out justice that the real legal system should have uh, and failed to do. And so this isn't a miscarriage of justice. This is an enactment of justice. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I, 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 I agree. <laughs> <laughs> I, concur. I concur with what you're saying. Uh, it's it makes the whole thing um, really palatable. And um, it, when in like the, the initial, or, or I mean, any way, other way this was presented, like a murder where 12 different people stabbed. <laughs> one stabbed body. I mean, it's one kind of body. horrific to think about. Yes. It. Yeah. Like that, like imagine that as the headline <laughs> versus like we said, this kind of presentation of information that feels justified and we all kind of sign off on it. <laughs> There is there is a there is a kind of an underlying darkness to this it, when you think about what has actually happened, which is uh, this guy's afraid for his life because he begs for help. He, he begs for help. Nobody helps him, and he then, begs for help from the authorities. <laughs> like <laughs> he's drugged, he's drugged, and then one by one, twelve people go into his room and, and stab him, and they don't know if they're the first. Yeah. And and it's like younger people and it's older people and it's men and it's women and it's just it's kind of shocking when you think about it in those terms. But Agatha Christie does such a good job of of showing us this through Poirot's eyes and and we see it as a challenge. It's an exercise of the brain, he calls it. It's um it's it's just a puzzle to try to put together and um I mean, it's in some ways, it's like one of the one of the things that that some people say is that uh, like the murder mystery is a metaphor for um, the analysis of art, and that the murder the, the the murder is the the work of art like par excellence, and that then the job of the detective is the job of the of the literary critic who then analyzes look at looks at details and tries to find meaning in this act i haven't heard that analysis but that feels like it came from a very self-congratulatory literary critic (laughs) probably but um (laughs) no you need to understand what we're really doing (laughs) (laughs) well yeah i mean partly because it's (laughs) what we do is really important no, but it is. It, it, it then becomes uh, a metaphor for life and reading, and the well, and also and, and, yeah, a, a find, finding meaning, right, <laughs> of chaos, right. That, well, that's what we're doing. Is we're, yeah. we're, we find meaning, and that's what a detective does. Is he sees something horrible and gruesome, and he tries to, or, or she tries to find meaning in in this thing that that is that is creating an emotional response in us. Right, it's a it's a it's a human work that creates a visceral emotional response, and that maybe works as a loose definition for art, but it also works as a definition for like life. Right, <laughs> like we go through life and we're confronted with things that cause uh, emotional responses in us, and part of our jobs as human beings is to try to piece together meaning out of the stuff around us. And we use metaphors like with with other people when we say I can't read that person very well. You know, we use metaphors of lit- from literature uh, that we also use in 
you know, solving crimes, yep. and it's all kind of connected in cool ways. I think. Um, I feel like in this episode we've we've talked almost more about the mur- the the crime genre than Poirot. So let's uh, in our last little bit, if we were going to try and like identify what's unique about Poirot in this crime genre mystery genre that is just filled with detectives left and right what makes Poirot stand out as one of the most famous well it's it's an interesting question because it all it by its very nature it uh, elicits comparisons right so you think mm-hmm. how is Poirot similar to or different from Sherlock Holmes or um what's her name Jessica Fletcher or Rick Castle or you know, uh, Bones Wall- and uh, Wallander, Booth. right? Bones and Booth. Um, <laughs> there's just something in his personality, in the way that he carries himself, that that makes him stand out. I think he he's short. He has this big mustache. Um, we get the impression that he's very uh, kind of tidy and um, formal in his in the way that he treats other people. But the, the thing that stands out to me is it maybe more than other people is the way that he views this as exercise. I mean, he says it's, it's an exercise of the mind and, and he really revels in that. Not I'm, sometimes we, we see the detective as like gifted mm-hmm. and this is, this has come out a lot in American TV recently the detective with autistic tendencies who, because he has this gift is able to see things that other people don't see. And this is really underlined in, in like the BBC Sherlock or in psych. Um, And with Poirot, I don't get the sense that he has some special gift of perception, but if he does have a gift, it's a gift of focus. And we see we see his true gift in that that scene in the book where Book and Constantine cannot keep their thoughts quiet enough to really mull over all of the evidence. And Poirot, it's just it's work. It, it's it's work going and interviewing all of these people and making notes and making lists and lists of questions. But then it's also just being able to sit still and and move through all of that evidence and try to piece things together uh and it's it's kind of a different method than i think we see in other detectives i like that the focus is um kind of what allows him to resolve this and not like with sherlock holmes it's often like this flash of a connection that no one else could possibly make (laughs) right um and i think there's also like something in the way he carries himself i feel and I think we just said this a little bit before, but like there's there's almost like a, a joyfulness and it almost feels like he goes around with a smirk of happiness, but not of condescension. <laughs> Does that make sense? <laughs> I mean, in some ways, sometimes the way he presents information could feel very condescending, but the way it gets presented by Agatha Christie never feels like he has an air of superiority about himself. I mean, I, I told you that funny anecdote from the other character where there's yes. this idiot that keeps bothering him uh, and he, but he makes the person feel important and as an outside reader you could say well like really he clearly knows a lot more that's going on but he doesn't really make the guy feel stupid for <laughs> for missing things and we kind of take this separate outsider's view of joy at, at seeing um, the idiot you know the, the way that uh, that pro handles him but then like you compare that to characters like um Sherlock Holmes who is just so condescending all the time. Yes. <laughs> and, and like you sometimes wonder like Watson, why do you put up with this? Right. Uh and, and I don't get that level of like sense of superiority from Poirot even though he knows and he calls himself like the world's greatest detective. Like he refers to himself as that. <laughs> and yet somehow it he doesn't come off with the same level of arrogance that a Sherlock Holmes does. One of the things that I like about him is he he feels like a teacher even more so than than Sherlock with Watson who I mean I it doesn't sound fun to me to go and try to solve a crime with Sherlock Holmes it sounds horrifying <laughs> Because emotionally abusive. You would, you would just be totally emotionally abused the whole time that you're try that you're staring, you know, down this horrible thing that's happened. But with Poirot, he feels like a coach or a teacher with Book and Constantine, where he's like, Come on, guys, we can do this. You know, like think it through. And and he doesn't feel like a jerk about it. 
although it's clear that he's way better at the, at doing this than they are but it's like he really wants them to to figure it out with with him because i don't know, like he wants them to have the same kind of joy that he gets from figuring it out or something but i i think that's maybe another thing that separates him from others is that he he's this teacher right he's he's tutoring them in the art of uh solving mysteries in a way that we don't get from others while maintaining his air of superiority and <laughs> And, and and somehow managing to do it without coming off as a jerk. Like, we like him. I mean, as I'm reading this, I like him as a character. I'm not ever put off by his manners or uh, the way that he treats others. Uh, it's it's fascinating. Yeah. And, cool and I think she walks, yeah, she walks that line very well in presenting Poirot. Yeah. Well, listeners, if you enjoy Poirot, guess what? There's a lot of Poirot out there that <laughs> you could go and find besides Murder on the Orient Express. But I... I uh, believe that you'll see a lot more about Murder of the o- Murder of the Orient Express shortly after this episode drops because of the the Kenneth Branagh movie that will be coming out. I'm looking at the back of my book here. 25, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, 31, 32, 33, 34, 35, 36, 37. There's like 39 or 40 Poirot myster- mysteries. Yeah, so. yeah, I think it had uh, – well, and then there's the short stories too. I think it said over 50 short stories and yeah. over 30 novels with Poirot. Yep. So there's plenty of them out there. All right. Well, I think that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you for joining us. For show notes and links to all the other great Dueling Genre shows, go to DuelingGenre.com. Also, please subscribe to the Protagonist Podcast in your podcast app of choice, and please leave us a review. That really helps us out. If you enjoyed this episode, you may want to go check out episode number 39, when we talked about the first detective story, Murders on the Rue Morgue, or episode number 47, when we discussed the TV show Veronica Mars. You can suggest stories or characters for us to discuss, or give us any comments or corrections by emailing feedback at protagonistpodcast.com. We're also on Twitter. You can follow at protagonistpod, at Todd K. Mack, and at Jay Dorowski. And our producer, Andrew, is at Andrew underscore Dorowski. And our Facebook fan page is facebook.com slash protagonistpodcast. We have really good conversations there with our listeners, and we would love for you to stop by and say hello or add any comments about any of the episodes that we have done. If you would like to support the show financially, you can buy a topic for us to discuss or show your appreciation with a monetary donation by going to patreon.com com slash protagonist. Thank you again for listening, and we'll be back next week to discuss another great character in a great story. So long. So long. Uh, let me th- let me gather some thoughts. You probably have some thoughts. I'm gathering them too. I was hoping <laughs> you would begin while I gather. <laughs>